0: Imagine being accused of a crime you didn't commit. Now imagine that crime was murder and that you're not only accused but convicted and sentenced to life behind bars. That was the reality for my next guest who, after being jailed for murder in 1990, fought to clear his name. After 12 years in prison, Raphael Rowe eventually had his convictions quashed and walked free from court. Raphael, who has since his release worked as an investigative journalist for the BBC, joins us now not only to share his uh, extraordinary story but also to talk about his latest project uh, as the host of a new netflix series inside the world's toughest prisons rafael welcome to late nights on craig cape talk great to have you uh, with us uh, on the line from i believe you're in london this evening
1: I am in London and thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you tonight.
0: Yours is a quite extraordinary story and, uh, I sort of, I came across it by, by accident really, um, having watched your, um, an episode of your Netflix series, uh, series which we'll talk about in just a minute. But, uh, and then Googling you, I then found out, uh, more about your extraordinary background. Um, and it, it would be great if you could just share, um, and I say briefly and I know it's not really something that can be done briefly uh, but you essentially you were convicted of murder in 1990 um, in the UK as part of um, uh, a group of people who became known as the m 25 Three. and the M25 for those of you who may not realise um, is a big highway that goes essentially round around uh, London in the south of England. So how how did this happen? What happened to the point that you spent 12 years behind bars for a crime that you didn't commit?
1: Well, you say it's extraordinary, but it's also inspirational um, simply because of the the, the final outcome. But in essence, when I was 20 years old, I was wrongfully arrested, charged and yes, sentenced to life in prison never to be released by the British criminal justice system for a murder and a series of robberies that I and two other black men didn't commit. The victims of the crimes described the perpetrators of being two white and one black, yet three black men spent 12 years in prison convicted of those crimes. And in all those years that I was in prison, I personally, with my family and a bunch of lawyers, campaigned to highlight the flaws and inefficiencies in the criminal justice system that led to our wrongful convictions. At first, they, they, you know, opposed our appeals, but eventually through the European Court of Human Rights and a body here in the UK called the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which looks at alleged miscarriages of justice, our case was referred back to the Court of Appeal for a second time and it was at that appeal hearing, based on the European Court's ruling, a unanimous decision by 21 judges that we were denied the right to a fair trial being convicted of a crime committed by two and one black was just one point and so our convictions were quashed in the year 2000, after 12 years, I was arrested in 1988 when I was 20 and I was released in June 2000 when i was 32 years old
0: unbelievable i mean just just unbelievable now there are there are a myriad of questions that that i have for you and that i've had since since i heard about your story but uh, for in order in order to make sure that we have time to to, to sort of cover everything and i really do want to talk uh, about the series the moment that you were convicted what was the first thought that went through your mind, and, and was it a sur- was it a surprise to you that you were convicted, or had you had your your legal team said, listen, this is not looking good for you?
1: I suppose when you're sitting in a cell, and I was held on remand in a maximum security prison, Which being accused of crimes i I was in Brixton prison at the time yeah. um, and it, I, I wasn't just in a prison, I was in a prison within a prison because I was deemed an A category prisoner, which is one of the highest category, if not the highest category prisoner here in the UK and I suppose it was during those 18 months waiting to be taken to trial that, that my most angry times and frustration as my lawyer said, oh this is going to happen, that is going to happen and I suppose when I heard the jury come back and say guilty despite the fact that there was overwhelming evidence during the course of the trial that suggested we were not guilty and I go back to the point the victim stood in the dock and said you know the perpetrators we believed were two white and one black and gave descriptions of blue eyes and fair hair yet here I was a man with dreadlocks as was one of my co-defendants and so we were convicted so when the jury read out the verdict guilty um, it just Boiled inside me, I I was angry, I screamed, I shouted, I was dragged out of the dock and down to the cells and I didn't stop screaming and shouting in all those 12 years that I was in prison because I was angry, I was bitter and I was twisted because I knew that I didn't do what I was being held in prison for the rest of my life for.
0: One of the reasons, that, again, and this is just an aside, really, but one of the reasons that your story was so fascinating to me was that I actually grew up um, in Oxted in Surrey, which is
1: yeah, the... Right. <laughs> which is... Um, where one of these crimes was actually committed. Yeah. Was one of these series of crimes, Oxted, Surrey, the Napiers, there was a crime committed, a, an aggravated robbery, where a man was stabbed by these perpetrators. And it was that... That property that one of the victims described the two white and one black men. So yeah, it was a very middle class Yeah. Area.
0: And that was, that was really the, the picture also that I wanted to paint of Oxted is it's, it's probably one of the wealthier area, wealthiest, um, perhaps areas outside of, of central London. I would have thought, um, it's a very, it's a green belt, very white, very middle class area. Um, uh, to the extent, and, and this is just, this is just to, to paint a picture, um, for my listeners is that I went, to, I was one of, um, myself and my brother were, were the two only black children, uh, in, the school that we went to a large school of 1500 pupils um there was um one black teacher who i think survived at our school for about 6 months before uh leaving um under a sort of cloud of uh of um allegations of, of racism etc cetera, etc cetera. so that is just to, to to paint a picture and of course Ooh. it has no direct link to, to to your to your case but that is just to, to paint a picture uh, for uh, for our listeners so whilst in prison you Rather than sort of taking this inward, well, I suppose you did take it inward, but you, you, you utilised your time in prison uh, to study and to educate yourself.
1: Not at first. Right. I mean, for the first five or six years, I was so bitter and twisted I fought the system physically. You know, I refused to do anything that the prison system wanted me to do <sighs> because I just couldn't, I couldn't process what they wanted me to process, which was to conform to the regime and the system itself. So at first I fought too for now and spent a lot of time in isolation, in segregation, being punished for refusing to do simple things like get out of my cell bed, leave my cell, go to work and do the things that you're supposed to do in prison as a convicted and guilty person. So Mm -hmm. for the first five or six years um, in my my early 20s, 20 to 25, 26, I was bitter to and and, and fighting. It was only when I met other older and wiser victims of miscarriage of justice who'd been through what i I'm going through, but they've been through it already and they've done 5, 10, 15 years. Um, one notorious case, Winston Silcott, accused murder of a mm. police officer mm. here in, in England. Meeting people like that, meeting the Birmingham Six, these are high profile, nos- notorious miscarriage of justice cases where these individuals said, you're not going to prove your innocence down in a segregation block where you're stripped naked and have nothing but a cardboard table and chair. You need to use the time to fight by understanding what has happened to you. And those were the turning points for me. And so I then studied journalism, because I needed journalists on my side to tell my story. Mm. I spent every day reading the Bible, not not the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ type Bible, but the Bible known in law as Archibald. Mm. It was the book of all books to understand the law. So by Studying journalism in my prison cell as a security prisoner, and I was moved out of my cell every two weeks as a form of control and security, it was those two elements, journalism and studying that Archibald that helped me overturn my conviction and educate myself, if you like, around the criminal justice system, but also around the media and how to, I don't hesitate to say manipulate journalists to convince them to tell my story and to tell the truth as opposed to what, was told at the time that I was convicted
0: i don't think it would be unfair to say that that the the legal justice system uh and uh and the, the criminal justice system in the uk is certainly no friend of the young black male we have seen that um you know for certainly my experience of growing up in the UK um with uh, with with a, a brother you know and and particularly also where we lived I mean I remember we lost we left our keys once at, at home and so my brother nipped over our back fence uh to go in through our back door and find the and to get the key under the under the under the Matt. within three minutes mm-hmm. four police cars had turned up at our home um and wouldn't and it was only and we which we were forced to sit in uh, until my white mother returned home and said yes these are our children so it's mm-hmm. it, the, the, this and and your story is is not the first story of of its kind why has it been so important for you um since being released that you are able to to tell your story and and I spoke and another question that I have in fact but before I ask you that Reading through the the, um, the the appeal system and, and what was the, the conviction overturning um, or the overturning of the conviction, here's something that stuck out for me, um, which was that um, the, uh, the judge said the evidence against Roe was overwhelming. Um, and that uh, the uh, the justices involved were saying that although the convictions were unsafe, they were not declaring the men innocent. How does that sit with you?
1: At the time, I was I was annoyed, but it didn't it didn't surprise me. They've said that before in other cases because of the status quo. There is nothing worse than an ordinary man like myself or ordinary people taking on the criminal justice system and proving that they got it wrong, that Mm -hmm. they wrongly convicted individuals. We are not high-powered, upper-class lawyers who are paid hundreds of thousands of pounds to present a case in court. I, like many others, are ordinary people. And so for me to prove... To my lawyers that I was innocent and for my lawyers to take that information to the court and challenge the court, the status quo had been challenged, the status quo that the British criminal justice system did not get it wrong. So they needed to leave a stain on our reputation, on the safety of our conviction, in the public's mind and in the public's perception. that Yes, these guys are being released from prison and we're releasing them because the safety of their conviction can no longer be upheld but don't be surprised if they're not still guilty. That was the suggestion that the judges were leaving in the perception mm, of mm-hmm. the public's mind. And why would they do that? They do that because they don't want the public to believe that the criminal justice system got it wrong. Yeah. And let me add this. Let me add this. If, if we were guilty, why would you let us go? Why would you release three men who have convicted an horrendous murder and a series of very serious robberies and attempted murders why would you let them go they knew we were innocent from the very beginning but they needed to tarnish our reputation and to be honest walking out of that court on that day it didn't matter what they said i'd won back my freedom Mm. i'd been called all the bad names you could imagine so being told once again by a judge that we may not be innocent had no weight with me whatsoever
0: Mm. Interesting, interesting. If you are just joining us, uh, Raphael Rowe is my guest uh, on late nights uh, this morning, uh, and his story is uh, is extraordinary. But as he says, also uh, inspirational. Convicted uh, of a murder that he didn't commit in 1990, he spelt, spent 12 years in prison before the uh, conviction was finally uh, declared uh, unsafe and overturned. Let's talk about life uh, life since uh, since being in prison. So you'd obviously you'd you'd studied uh, journalism while in prison. Uh, was it r- very obvious to you that that would be your uh, your career progression uh, once you left and that that was what you wanted to do?
1: No, it wasn't. I, I, I studied journalism because I needed to get journal- understand how journalists were yeah. so they would write and tell stories. Yeah. I never got to finish the correspondence course that I was doing in prison because of the... I was a high-category prisoner, so it meant that I lost a lot of the paperwork. So I never got to complete the course. When I got out of prison in the year 2000, I was just very fortunate that I met somebody who was in a position of power, working for one of the most prestigious radio programs here in the UK called the Radio for Today program. Mm. It's the program that the prime minister wants to get on every day to make their point across to the most important Movers and Shakers, if you like, him in the UK. And it just so happened that I was in a position where I met that editor. He'd recognized who I was from my being released and offered me an opportunity to come and join the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. I took that offer and I never looked back. And I went from working as a reporter on the BBC flagship radio program to working on the BBC's flagship t v current affairs and longest serving current affairs program in the world panorama I mean that's and every dream- journalist
0: dream that's what I dreamt of as as a little girl i mean yes. that's phenomenal
1: yes yeah yes it it is and and do you know what it's because when I sat down beside other journalists who, like you just said it was their dream they cut off their left hand to be sitting where i was sitting within a year of being released from prison i should had and i should say the way i sound now jane is nowhere like i sounded back in 2001 when i joined the bbc i was still talking prison slang i was still very much off the streets of london you know i've just been released from prison after 12 years so i didn't sound anywhere like i sounded now in fact the BBC audience used to get so frustrated with my dialogue, if you like, or my terminology that they'd get numerous complaints and how very dare the BBC <laughs> allow this person who can't speak, the Queen's, the Queen's English, English on this programme. <laughs> but do you know what, Jane? I didn't care. I, I was on a mission to do the best that I can be successful despite my background.
0: Mm. Unbelievable, unbelievable! Uh, if you are just joining us, uh, you're listening to Late Nights with me, Sarah Jane King, and my guest uh, on the show is uh, Raphael Rowe, whose story is uh, is quite phenomenal. I mean, really, this is it's the it's the stuff of movies. I'm guessing that somebody's been in touch with you to ask if they if they can make a movie or if they if you would uh, if you would want
1: to be involved. I'm still waiting for that call, actually. Are you? <laughs> but no, I, I haven't. I no, I I've, I've gone on and I get to do the stuff that I've enjoyed doing for the last 18 years since I've been out of prison. I've been a very successful journalist working for the BBC, working on various programmes where I can bring a sense of, of social justice as well as justice, highlighting not just miscarriages of justice, there has been something that I've done, but looking at other issues around the the exploits of of, you know the bad guys if you like whether it's corporate companies or individuals or the criminal justice system but i have specialized in that area because i want to be the voice of those who are voiceless and there are many out there i was strong enough to have my voice heard but there's not many people out there that do And, and so if i can represent those people in some way shape or form that's what drives me forward
0: Let's talk about your Netflix series. Now one might question why after already having spent um so much time in jail for a crime that you didn't commit that you would want to go into some of the world's uh, most dangerous penal institutions. But that's exactly what you've uh, what you've done and what you've been doing uh, for inside the world's toughest prisons and uh, as as I say said at the start uh, I watched uh, an episode last week and it was um yeah I mean it, it's it's compelling viewing Raphael
1: you know what? It wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't an easy decision for me to decide to go back into prison and take on the persona as a prisoner for seven days. But it was an important decision that I made because I wanted to I wanted to see how prisons in other countries around the world balance security, locking people up with the cultural differences and, and, and how they treat their prisoners and how prison guards are treated working in these places. So although I'm seven days with prisoners, I do spend one day with prison guards. It was a challenging decision, but I think the outcome is that my experience, my knowledge and my understanding drew out the empathy and sympathy from prisoners as well as prison guards in a way that somebody who hasn't been to prison, for example, can't do. That's not to say that I, I have an edge over an ordinary journalists, but, but but I have an understanding and mm. I think based on the response I've had from the audience it, it went down well there was very difficult times I mean you know notwithstanding the danger and the threats of being in a very dangerous place but for me emotionally and physically being reminded of some of those experiences I experienced myself was very challenging.
0: Just to, to give a, a, a brief premise of the show then you are essentially embedded in Uh, in jails with prisoners, some very, very dangerous prisoners, um, for a week, Um, and and just living a life with them for that time.
1: I am, yes. I mean, basically from the moment I arrive at the prison gates, I'm stripped of my identity again, only this time it's not for real. It is to an extent that I'm, you know, everything that I own, my clothing and my identity is stripped away and I'm given another prison number or I'm given prison clothes, and then I'm taken into the prison and handed over to the prisoners, if you like, and they take control of me. So I have to, but I suppose, try and understand how they exist. You know, these are places that don't have the resources to rehabilitate prisoners. They don't have the resources in some places to even feed the prisoners. It's that horrendous. And, And the level of security for rapists, murderers, gang violence, Individuals. I mean, these are some of the most, if not the most dangerous prisoners in these prisons in those countries. Brazil, Belize, Ukraine were were some of the first places that I I, I went to, and Papua New Guinea. Um, it, it was a really challenging. It was challenging, but but you know something. There was something. There was this rapport that I was able to develop with the prisoners because I was giving them an opportunity to share to share their voices, Mm. and that's not to say we should have sympathy for murderers and rapists, that's not what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, if we want to stop the next murderer, if we want to stop the next rapist, if we want to reach into communities and change things, you need to hear from those that have already done it, how can we change things, that's what was important.
0: The, the show reminds me of uh, of a show uh, and very very slightly it has to be said um that Ross Kemp did a few years ago and that sort of became notorious Ross Kemp going into prisons and of course he came here to South Africa to one of our um sort of better known prisons or probably the, the most infamous prison in South Africa paulsmore prison um but of course he wasn't bed he wasn't staying in in the prison say staying like him it sounds like a hotel but he was not embedded with the prisoners he was doing sort of you know talking heads with with uh with the with the inmates did you feel that your experience of having spent 12 years in prison even though you're going to countries where you wouldn't necessarily speak the language or the or the vernacular or the dialect you you spoke a similar i guess soul language language of experience that allowed you to uh, Communicate with, with inmates in a way that, let's say, um, one of your um, BBC colleagues wouldn't be able to do who hasn't had that experience at all?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there was an aura around me in these environments that sort of came out, if you like. It kind of oozed itself in the same way that I survived in real prison, as a prisoner, being one of those who was attacked, who would attack, who was you know, the victim in many different ways, but but knew the system. And that aura of a prisoner, and prisoners who are listening to this, or prisoners and people that have spent time in prison will know exactly what I'm talking about. But there is an aura around a prisoner when you've served a long time in prison, an instinct, a back against the wall kind of thing that that kind of comes out. Prisoners know instinctively that there is something about you as an individual that, is the same as them you survived an environment that is far more dangerous than most other places and sometimes i didn't even have to tell prisoners they would come up to me in ukraine in particular a prisoner came up to me and he said you've been to prison before and these were Mm. i believe quite racist individuals who didn't want to interact with me and the only other black prisoner that was in this prison but i felt that vibe but then that was broken down by the simple fact that, although my color is different to theirs, I'd been to prison. Now, I hadn't told these prisoners, but they came up to me in the exercise yard and they said, you've been to prison. I can see in your position, in the way you stand, the way you carry yourself, that you've been to prison. And that's not something I do on the outside world, but in prison, instinctively, I'd move to the corner. I'd put my back against the wall. I'd behave in a particular way so prisoners knew that i was one of them and i suppose that came out in all the time that i went around these prisons
0: what do you want people to to take away from from the show i mean there is obviously um an entertainment aspect it is it is entertaining Mm. it is compelling viewing but but aside from that what do you want people to take away from the show
1: i think it's important that people understand but prisons in different places around the world operate in different ways. And I think the most important thing is, is that when somebody goes to prison, if, at some point they will be released. At some point that individual could become your neighbour. And that it's important that once they're in prison, we do as much as we possibly can to rehabilitate that individual. Now, yes, many of these individuals are in for murder, robbery, and serious other offences like rape. But the majority are in for other offences where they will be released, and they will be released back into society. So I hope that when people watch this, they get a a deeper insight into what really goes on in these secretive places like prisons, but more importantly, that they take a stand in their own mind and think, well, when this person is released, they need to be rehabilitated, not for their own sake, but for society. So when they come back out into society and they're re-socialized, that they don't commit another crime because they would be that victim.
0: One thing that I did want to ask you before we end, Raphael, is, and, and it might seem like a, a, an obvious question or, or an obvious answer, but I wanted to hear from you. What has been the most defining moment in your life?
1: Going to prison for a crime I didn't commit. Coming out of prison and becoming a, a journalist. Having two sides of my life mm. has allowed me to, to appreciate time, space, because there was a moment in my life where I thought this was it. I was confined in a six-by-nine square space, concrete bars, and that was the end. That's where I was going to die. I was not going to see the light or or breathe fresh air again. And you've got to, it's important to say this, you've got to understand that when you're in that confined space of being trapped by a wall, you don't see beyond that wall. You can see the sky, but you can't see a distance. Hmm. When you travel in a vehicle, when you're released from prison or taken out of prison, you travel faster than your feet can carry you. I didn't expect any of that to happen again. So I suppose when it did, it made me realise that life and time is far more important for all of us. Will you write a book? Eventually. I, 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 you know, interestingly, while I was in prison, I wrote a diary. And I kept a diary for 12 years. And that diary I'm looking at now, it's not a one book, but there is a tin in my study, in my home that carries those 12 years. It might be one day there's just one line and it just says I'm fucking angry. Excuse yeah. my friend yeah. Or it might be it might be a paragraph where I say I had a lovely visit from my mum and my sisters today who are still supporting me nine years on. <sighs> it might be it was my birthday and I got a card with a kiss from my mum. And there are pages where i've just done a cross which expresses how angry so i've written a diary but i haven't written a book
0: hmm, extraordinary are you still angry
1: no i'm not i was angry for 12 years and i've tried to be consciously aware of the fact that those 12 years of being angry and bitter was while I was in prison. Now I'm a free man, I shouldn't, allow, I shouldn't allow it to consume me in the way that it did when I was in prison. I was very militaristic when I was in prison, didn't make any friends or associate with very many people, and I wasn't going to allow that bitter and angryness to consume me on the outside.
0: Uh, the show is called Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, and uh, Season 3 uh, has just been announced. It will be starting uh, on Netflix on the 14th of December, but Season 2 is out, available for you to watch. Please do yourselves a favour and uh, and uh, and take a look at it. It is quite, uh, as I say, quite compelling viewing. Uh, Raphael, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for speaking uh, with such, uh, such candour about your story, and uh, all the very best.
1: Thank you very much, Jane. It's great talking to you too. Have a great show.